You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. This is our third episode on the subject of upgrading heritage buildings for climate resilience. I am reticent about a fabric-first approach in terms of being heat pump ready, because in my experience and the research that we've done is that designing a fabric alteration and then assuming the building services will just go in and the heat pump will just work as we think it will actually doesn't necessarily result in a good performing system. Today, our guest is Marwenna Slade, Head of Historic Building Climate Change Adaptation at Historic England, a post she took up two years ago. Marwenna is a conservation-accredited building surveyor who previously worked for the National Trust and the Church's Conservation Trust. She is also a member of the technical panel of the Institute of Historic Building Conservation, which reviews upcoming national guidance and policies for both traditional materials and new technologies. Morwenna is based in Bristol. We're talking to Morwenna today about the direction of travel within historic England in response to climate emergency. Heritage buildings make up such a large percentage of our existing building stock and are amongst the most challenging to upgrade. In our last episode, we drilled down into the issues of one London conservation area. Now we're zooming out to look at what sorts of policies and guidance are emerging at the national level. Morena, firstly, could you explain for us what exactly is the remit of Historic England? So Historic England is the arm's length government body that helps people care for and champion the historic environment in England. We have a, a planning role as a statutory consultee, and also we, we provide a lot of technical guidance and advice. And we have a training provision that where we are responsible for making sure that people understand what they can and can't do and the best way forwards. My team is also responsible for research. So we look at the emerging challenges in the historic environment, but also how the performance of buildings and materials can be best used to ensure the longevity of our our important historic environment. Tell us a bit about your background and what led you to the role you're in now. Gosh, well, I've had quite a varied background. As you mentioned in your introduction, I am a chartered building surveyor. Before that, I I actually started out in archaeology and very quickly learned that I loved buildings archaeology and I loved the, the historic environment, the built environment. I worked for a while in projects and on the client side and have a master's in historic building conservation, which helped me really focus down to the idea that I did want to become a building surveyor. However, graduating into the 2008 financial crash is not the best time to go into that sector. So I ended up working for the National Trust in a freelance way, managing lobbying around energy efficiency in traditional buildings. I then took up a role managing the maintenance and and repair of of the church's conservation trust estate. And that brought me back into the world of, of conservation more solidly. 
And going back into a very steeped in conservation world allowed me to see how sustainability and conservation are actually so well matched. And often I think we see it as a challenge between the two. But when you take the, the tension away, you realise that actually they are much more closely aligned and can help one another in their delivery of on the ground changes that we need to, to make to our built environment. I sort of decided that what I needed to do was get myself chartered really quickly, um, but also kind of get more and more understanding around what we can do in a really proactive way within the historic built environment to meet the climate crisis. My role, current role, came up in Historic England and I was so excited. It was like somebody had written a role for me. I was able to look at the research, look at the policy, understand the gaps that needed filling and provide the advice and guidance that we all desperately need when we're actually making decisions. So your role is Head of Climate Change Adaptation. Did this role exist before you started doing it? No, so I have the privilege of taking up a, a new role and a new remit within the technical conservation team at Historic England. So I've been in, in position for two years and in that time, I have, have built a multidisciplinary team that is focused not only on challenges such as retrofit, but broader climate hazard risk analysis and adaptation through our, our built environment. Although it is a new remit, it is really worth highlighting that Historic England and the technical conservation team specifically have been working on climate change for many years. And now my challenge is to find professionals who are as passionate as I am to start taking some of the information out that we currently have, but also to work with others more broadly to spot the gaps and understand where we need to do more research in terms of performance or, or materials, but also where we have that understanding, how to turn it into advice and guidance and deliver good quality CPD to everyone who, who needs it, which in my opinion is everybody. <laughs> so there's a mainstream approach to retrofit. Um, the sort of measures that an EPC might um, tell you to do and sort of typical materials like plastic foam, insulated plasterboard. But these can cause big problems, especially to do with moisture when working on traditional buildings. So could you outline some of the specific challenges of working with historic buildings in terms of improving their energy performance? So a traditional building and a modern building, they perform very differently. And we need to think about the materials and the processes and the standards that we're going for, for how a building performs and the materials that already exist within it, instead of sort of throwing a standard approach to all buildings and expecting a perfect outcome every time. So I think within very specifically that the historic environment for so listed buildings, conservation areas, Adding in how we make sure that the designs for the performance of that building, whether it's improving through insulation or different building services, don't compromise the, the cultural importance of that building, can be seen as perhaps a bigger barrier than actually it is. Often, when you look at the performance of a building and the significance of the building, the decisions you would make around the materials you might use to upgrade it are in harmony. So ultimately, when you want to improve the thermal performance of a, of a traditional building, be it historic or, or otherwise, you want vapour open materials. You want materials that will buffer the internal environment properly, but also consider new risks such as overheating. Using, as you said, foam-backed insulation is never going to make that building perform at its best, where it could be used in a different 
building and and that would the performance would be absolutely fine historic england deals with all sorts of buildings not just the traditional historic but lloyds of london is is great one listed you know <laughs> the the number of buildings which are post-war which are concrete or metal framed which significant quantities of glazing actually we are as as aware of the performance of modern materials and their appropriate use as we are within traditional buildings and traditional materials and then you have the idea that in terms of embodied carbon and the performance of, of materials, when you look at green materials, they often are traditional materials. So it, you can use hemp lime in a modern construction. You can use timber and we can maybe look for the best material or not maybe. We should definitely look for the best material for the best building so that the performance of the building is as we want it to be and the comfort and occupant, the kind of use is tailored to that, to that upgrade. There's a tremendous amount of guidance available on retrofitting heritage buildings, but it is fragmented and it's confusing to know where to look for it and how to put it all together when you're in the trenches working on a project. You don't have time to do loads of research. So I saw that Historic England is now running webinars, a technical series, and currently a series on lessons from the Global South. Tell us about the range of guidance I'm so glad you mentioned the webinars because that's something that I feel passionate about bringing quick information that's available to professionals that don't have a lot of time. And certainly that's my experience of of being on site with decisions to make is that I can't necessarily take time to read a hundred page document and find out what the latest research is. My team and and technical conservation has a range of of guidance documents. We have web pages. So if you go onto Historic England's website, we have Your Home, which is for homeowners and, and that audience. But we also have the technical guidance available to professionals. It ranges from simple web pages through to larger guidance documents. We are developing our webinars, both in terms of specific climate change webinars and for technical Tuesdays. There is so much guidance. There is so much information. And it is very easy to get lost, but we are very conscious of that. And also, I think there is an element of making sure that what's there is updated and the quality and consistency remains at the highest possible level. A lot of the guidance for retrofitting historic buildings, like the Sustainable Traditional Building Alliance's retrofit wheel, highlights what can go wrong. But the guidance often shies away from saying what will be okay. So you end up needing specialist consultant input for woofy modelling and things like that. But there's only so many specialists one can really have on a project and it can be a barrier to rolling out retrofit at scale, especially on smaller projects. We've heard several people talking about a a kind of pattern book approach, where there's a toolkit of strategies and details for particular building typologies. Um, And in a given region, retrofitters could rely on a particular kind of strategy or or detail for most kind of measures. Do you think that's something that could be a a way forward? So I know that there are so many toolkits, pattern books, projects in the pipeline across the country. And I do think that they they have their place and they definitely have specific advantages. But we don't have a one-size-fits-all solution to any of these things. And the danger with a pattern book solution is that it seemed to be the only example of, of how to get it right. Whereas we know within the historic environment, actually, some of the smaller details can be very specific to those individual buildings. Now, I've worked in local authorities where... There is a standard accepted 
range of, say, external vents for when you want to put ventilation into a listed building. And as long as it matches that building, the local authority is happy to accept that application. And in those situations where it's carefully thought through in terms of the design of the area, the materials and how it fits with it, it really works. So I've had quite positive experience from that basis. But in terms of national rollout of retrofit, Actually, when you look at climate challenges and risks, they can be quite regionally specific, indeed very locally specific. And it's both a a challenge and an opportunity in this pattern book idea is that whether you can identify your local risks, whether it's overheating or flooding, and making sure that that reflects the guidance within that pattern book to make sure that we're not maladapting our buildings. A really good example of this is, is retrofitting in flood zones. It's very key that retrofit and flood zones is taken as a different approach to buildings that are not at risk of flood. The materials are different, the detailing is different, the design is different. Flooding, I mean, that's absolutely critical. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that angle of this. We've recently spoken to architect Chris Proctor here in London about a climate emergency conservation area toolkit that he's put together on behalf of ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network. I think you may have seen a draft of it. He audited Islington's Cross Street Conservation Area as an example of how guidance could be developed to set out what kinds of retrofit measures would be acceptable on certain building types in that conservation area. And there's a lot of technical detail involved, and it would be a struggle for every local authority to produce a document like that, or every conservation area. So national guidance that councils can, I don't know, cut and paste or adapt might help. Is this something that is a role for Historic England to work on? It has to be acknowledged that the the role of conservation officers and others in local authorities has been identified as, as critical in terms of positive delivery of this. And we know the challenges that we face in, in, in terms of capacity and knowledge and skills for this. You're quite right. It, we can't possibly expect every local authority to have the ability to do something in that depth. And Historic England is aware that there is a need. And we are working with local authorities. Our sector of skills and resilience team uh, work quite closely to ensure that we're providing the right level of, of training and guidance, but also those those key things that that local authorities can use that are quick and easy. The hazard mapping work that we're doing, which highlights what risks different areas and regions within England are are faced with and how then the next stage of that research will be looking at more specific impacts to buildings and how we make those decisions. We can then understand on a, a region by region and local authority by local authority basis whether they are doing the right, you know, cut and paste actions to make sure that the guidance for that conservation area is as careful and caring of the buildings and the historic environment as it is for the authorities that have more resources and the capability of doing the the dig deep, very technical advice and guidance. So what risks are you mapping? You're mapping flooding, you're mapping overheating? Overheating, flooding, slope collapse, shrink swell and uh, storm exposure. And at the moment, we have the data to be able to sort of say on a, on a broad regional basis, the kind of risks. It needs to be developed because we, we have to be aware of, of the risk of humidity. 
Some areas of, of the UK are very high risk of high humidity for a long period of time. And whilst perhaps the hot summer this year has made us all think, oh, right, overheating is a real thing. <laughs> we do need to detail our buildings for this. Actually, we need to think of prolonged higher humidities and the impacts that, that will have on, on our buildings and our design work. So the next step is to really look at a more granular uh, hazard and risk analysis of our, our built environment in order to make sure that where we're at risk of overheating, we are not reducing access to thermal mass, for example, or the detailing of shading and awning on the exterior of buildings is considered as part of retrofit. And I think there is a growing awareness of how we need not to retrofit for now, but we also need to retrofit for future risks. Chris explained that Islington currently has around 4,000 planning applications a year. And he calculated that if all the heritage buildings in Islington conservation areas were retrofitted by the year 2030 as a way of trying to meet our climate targets, that would add an additional 4,000 planning applications a year, so doubling the current number. The planning system was overwhelmed by a surge in domestic applications during COVID, and now it sort of feels like both the planning system and appeal systems have kind of fallen over. As a discretionary system, each time you want to replace windows in a conservation area, you have to submit an individual application for consideration. Are there any options, do you think, for streamlining the process so that the consent procedure for certain retrofit measures can be undertaken as a matter of right? Do you think there's any movement in, in that? So there is a, a government review happening about this at the moment, and Historic England is working extremely closely with the government departments to look at the, the options and consider the positive action in this area. I think that there are barriers and challenges across the whole planning environment, not just to do with historic buildings. And Historic England is working extremely hard to make sure that, that those are streamlined where possible. And I think we there are opportunities. Not being of a, a planning background myself, I know that my planning colleagues are very keen to see where we can support government to identify the, the, the key changes. But I think that it's worth remembering that actually... The planning system is there as a useful tool as much as is considered to be a barrier. The planning system and going for listed building consent can help you understand the ways that you can do it better. So it's not just a negative process. I find it's a really positive process. If you're applying for a listed building consent to change windows, understanding whether the real need is the windows or not is really key. So actually... I would hope that people see that it's not just a challenge, but it is an opportunity to really understand why your building is listed, what kind of construction it is, what the materials are and what the best actions are. So it's not the only course of action is to change windows because it's not necessarily going to result in the biggest impact for thermal performance. Undeniably, some buildings, their form and the, the, the glazing and maybe the condition of those those windows, it's a good option. But I think often the discussion results into a polarisation of yes or no, rather than is that the best thing for the building? And that's where the consent process can actually be of help. Yeah, because yeah, sometimes there's um, enthusiasts for traditional buildings sort of resist the need for, for retrofit and claim that traditional buildings use less energy than modern ones. In episode 37, Oliver Smith advocates making each building as good as it can be without going for any particular environmental certification on a listed building. Well, I think that every building 
has an opportunity to be improved, to improve its thermal performance, to lower its energy use. The, the expectation of thermal performance from a traditional building is about our use and our individual expectations. So we really need to think about what type of building we're faced with. Not everybody wants to live at a constant 21 degrees, even though we designed those standards quite, quite often. And I think as designers and professionals, we, we like to tick the box, which says, yes, we have achieved a static air temperature in this room, which means that comfort is achieved. But we all have our personal tastes and our, our preferences. I would absolutely support Oliver's position in terms of not just going for a particular standard, but going for what's right for the building and what's right for the occupant's use. The interesting and, and kind of fascinating thing about adapting historic buildings is that opportunity to see how they've been used often for lots of different purposes through the courses of their, their lifetime. We know that we can regenerate whole historic quarters from one industrial use into domestic use or into other commercial uses. Um, and actually, that's when we see that, OK, we have a good, solid, embodied carbon envelope that has been there for maybe two or three hundred years, but is now being used in an efficient and well-designed way for a modern purpose. And it's about tailoring our design for what we actually want right now. And indeed, remembering that we have had a very static climate and we're now looking at a, a climate that's changing quite rapidly. One minute it's quite warm, the next minute it can be quite cold. We have had storms this year, bringing us wind speeds that we have very rarely seen in this country before, causing damage. But we've also seen a level of overheating that we've never experienced before. And this is going to be even more visible over the next few years. The Climate Committee of Climate Change Risk Assessment that was published last summer said that we may experience 40 degree temperatures in the next 15 years. And within the year of that risk assessment being published, we had 40 degree temperatures in this country. So using what we have and really not criticising our opportunities, but really grabbing them with both hands and saying, great, I've got a building. How can I design it to be well? What are all my tools? What are all my opportunities? What are all my materials? And how do I best fit them to the occupant use, to the climate risks that we're facing and to lowering those emissions, whether it's embodied carbon of our materials use or whether it's putting in building services that really are efficient for the use of that building. That's where we have to really focus our attention. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I think that's what everyone in principle is trying to do. And certainly the whole volume and awareness about this has ramped up in the last three years. But the feedback that I get talking to architects working in this area is that while senior technical officers and guidance within Historic England are really up for tackling these issues in a serious way, sometimes the regional offices and historic building inspectors are not quite up to speed or on message and they need more support and this is challenging because of the diffuse nature of the organization and people being spread out in regional offices. So in your role, you need to be kind of like a gorilla in the bureaucracy to be an effective change maker. So how, how, how do you go about this in a big organization? Well, it's really interesting that you kind of recognize the size of Historic England, because often I think people don't realize uh, how large Historic England is and how many different remits those of us who work for Historic England cover. The regional teams, 
they, they aren't just development advice or inspectors, but we have so many different people specialising in so many different areas that to bring everyone with you is a challenge, but it's the best kind of challenge. And I think that um, people are passionate about what they have done professionally. And I don't find that there's any resistance to learning new things in historic England. External perceptions sometimes are our challenge internally because the conversations are not that we don't wish to learn new things, not that we don't want to be helpful and pragmatic when we site visit, but that the first conversation is, oh, but we can't. And many of my colleagues go, well, I haven't said anything yet. <laughs> um, so we, we have an internal climate change programme. We have published our climate change strategy. We have research, guidance, engagement. We do an awful lot of engagement internally. So drop in climate change sessions with the technical teams, making sure that we have good support and CPD and sort of guidance for our, our professionals internally, as well as everything that we do externally. I don't get the impression internally in Historic England that there is anything other than an acknowledgement that we definitely need to upskill where we need it, but also to, to kind of move forward in a positive way. So one of the things I did recently was I authored a report last year on resilience in this, in London, and I spoke to one of the chief planners in the city of London resilience team. They were doing very much what you're talking about, this internal kind of climate talks. They are also trying to do some pilot projects on the ground to show what's possible. Are there exemplar projects that are pointing the way that you're excited about? The watchword at the moment in historic England is case studies. So everybody is looking for those exemplars, wants to know what's been done across the country. Our main issue is, is capacity for producing them. There are so many, I wouldn't pick one, but there are so many really good projects and lots of work going on that's trying to look at best practice. My own position on it is, is that we are very good at sharing best practice within Historic England and, and actually looking at those exemplar projects. But we're not all that great at going back and acknowledging that something failed maybe 10 years later. <laughs> and that's where Historic England and the technical team can definitely be of benefit to everyone, both internally and externally, because that longevity of use, of monitoring... Our historic environment is one of the most monitored environments over 100 years. We have condition reports for, for 100 years for some of our most important buildings. We have environmental monitoring up to 25 years. It is those opportunities that we are yet to really bring to the fore, and that's conversations I'm currently having, is more broadly how the historic environment can demonstrate the way forward for, for lots of different types of buildings, just because of the, the wealth of data that we have going back sometimes over a hundred years in terms of the decisions that have been made on buildings the failure that has happened condition reporting you know it's it's a it's a huge opportunity but how we then take that and distill it into accessible information that you know as you mentioned earlier professionals don't have a lot of time sometimes we're in the trenches trying to make decisions and you don't want to you don't want to take a day out to go to a conference, what you need is that handy bit of information that points you in the right direction. And that's what I'm very keen to do. So to look at that practical uh, and high quality guidance and information and not just kind of have 
case studies of best practice that we never go back and really evaluate over time. You mentioned services earlier and the balance between improving the performance of the thermal envelope and and of the services. Heat pumps are often put forward as a quick fix for reducing energy use and uh, certainly easier to install than uh, addressing building fabric, particularly with an air-to-air heat pump. Many heritage buildings, the amount you can reduce heat loss through fabric improvements is constrained. So what's your view uh, of the balance between kind of better tech and a fabric-first approach? It's actually incredibly interesting because just this year we have done a heat pump research study that demonstrated that often it's the the use and occupancy of the building that really tailors whether your your services such as heat pumps will be effective. It's not just a a sort of fabric or either or option. We have had a review of, of existing heat pump installations where they have been very effective because they've been well designed for the use of the building. And this is both commercial and, and domestic and ecclesiastical. Good example is, is, is two Victorian churches, roughly the same age, same region. One has a heat pump and it's working really well. Another has a heat pump of the same design and it's not. Um, ultimately, one is used, one building is used all the time. It's sized correctly. It's, it's well maintained and, and the occupiers understand how to use it. The other is looking for a quick heat on a Sunday afternoon. And the rest of the the time, the building sits empty and largely unused. Now, if you say to me, but that's a a fabric problem, I'd say, well, actually, no, it's an occupancy (laughs) problem. So we really have to be aware of of designing the right thing for the right use. And I think the, the work that we've also done in terms of the commercial EPCs and our design against compliance for various different EPC bands we looked at whether uh, the two different types of modelling, uh, SBEM and DSM modelling, that's used to create commercial EPCs. And what what the results of this very sort of small study was that it, it really doesn't matter what you do to your fabric. It's all in the, in the building services for commercial buildings and, and the tweaking of those building services, which I found quite surprising. I was expecting those models to tell me that I, I needed to do an awful lot to my building fabric. And indeed, we want to expand the project to see more about the risks and the challenges of, of, of balancing services and, and fabric. I... I'm reticent about a fabric first approach in terms of being heat pump ready, because in my experience and the research that we've done is that designing a fabric alteration and then assuming the building services will just go in and the heat pump will just work as we think it will actually doesn't necessarily result in a good performing system. We also know that the insulation of buildings is where the highest risk is. So we can design a, a, a new heating system with a heat pump, and as long as we size it appropriately and we understand the use of for the building, we know that we can tinker with it. But we don't increase a huge amount of, of fabric risk or moisture risk. We're not at risk of damp and mould, and we're not re- at risk of, of reducing the, the airflow in the way that we are when we make significant interventions to the building fabric. So... I would like to see a little more recognition of how smaller interventions in the building fabric can bring you greater benefits, whilst also thinking of how the building services can be appropriately sized for the building and its use. It's a strange either or. Again, is it building services? Is it fabric first? Actually, it's got to be a bit of both. And thinking that we can do either 
in entirety just doesn't work for a lot of buildings and doesn't work for a lot of occupants either. So in its recent climate issue, the Architects' Journal ran a building study of Entopia, Archetypes conversion of a 1930s telephone exchange building for the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. The project epitomises many of the issues that we've been discussing. It's a retrofit that ticks all the boxes, Enerfit, Well, Gold and Briam Outstanding. It's arguably a rather dumpy and staid 1930s building from a period when classicism had kind of run out of steam. So when, in your view, does the urge to preserve everything go too far? Interesting question, because having been in conservation for quite a long time and having all sorts of conservation accreditations to my name and having worked for quite a few conservation minded charities and bodies now, I have yet to meet anyone who thinks that everything should be preserved just as it is in aspic. (laughs) It's something that I just don't meet professionally very often, if at all. The very nature of the historic environment is, is that it has changed. And that the the quality, the interest, some of the most fascinating things about our historic environment is where change has occurred through different periods. It's the changes often about social change, about industrial uh, development. It's about technological development. And it really shows, I mean, that's why it's culturally important. It's about change of design. It's about how we have needed something in one century and then needed something else in another century. And I think that often in these situations, and I I won't comment specifically on on a case, but often the idea of preserving something is held up as, as because someone didn't quite get what they wanted through the system. And actually there are reasons for looking after things and reasons for understanding that they are significant to to our our history to our culture to thinking how people enjoy their environment something that we don't talk about enough with our built environment is is how it makes us feel how the the joy of of what is around us i'd love to have the conversation which says is there too much change I mean, not in terms of that I think things should be preserved in aspect and there should be no change, but because actually sometimes something gets permission and I go, oh, that's a shame. (laughs) It was so pretty. (laughs) Of course, difficult and balance is needed, but that's that's human nature, isn't it? We have our opinions and we have our positions. And one of the great things about Historic England is that the many of my colleagues, especially in planning uh, in the advisory teams, they are very pragmatic. They want to see good quality change. They want to see that it's going to stand up against the test of time. They want to see the materials are good quality, that that they they are fitting with the area, that they don't detract or that we don't lose things that would otherwise bring us joy and that would otherwise add to that pattern of, of our of our built environment. And I think that that is something that we we should we should hold dear about the processes. Some of the processes are frustrating, but other processes are about just being a little bit more aware about how quickly we can lose things that that add to colour and pattern and joy. 
I wanted to ask you about something on a slightly different tact because your 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 role as climate adaptation implies more than just buildings and you've touched on on the risks aspect. So are you looking at landscapes as well and I know you've had a long involvement with habitat conservation on a Welsh hill farm. Tell us about that as well and maybe how that's informed your work at Historic England. The role of biodiversity in our environment, and I mean environment in the in the widest sense, is something I'm really passionate about. I grew up it, between central Bristol, it, you know, big city environment, historic city environment, and the middle of nowhere Wales, uh, you know, five miles to the nearest shop. And those two experiences were extremely formative for me. I'm really engaged in how our landscapes are not either built or natural, but they are indeed both. And in the face of climate change, actually, our loss of biodiversity is terrifying. And we all need to be a little bit more aware of where biodiversity, not only that biodiversity matters, but where it is um, in abundance. And actually, often the historic environment, say churchyards, are where small postage stamps of extremely important biodiversity exists. And through our decision making, both as as buildings professionals and natural environment professionals, our decision making there means that we can save some of the most important aspects of, of our natural environment or we can harm them. And we need to be more conscious about our actions. So I've been involved for a long time with a Welsh hill farm that's been run uh, with conservation principles. We have historic apple orchards with over 120 different types of of apple trees, a lot of um, traditional Welsh apples. The, The UK is essentially home to a globally rare type of environment which is is a, a temperate rainforest and you can genuinely see how diverse they are compared to everywhere else and the impact of our, our farming practices in terms of the the loss of the biodiversity even just in the last 20 years is just extreme terrifying in in many cases and we need to be more aware of where we have opportunities to support the biodiversity And actually, it's something that I would like to see more and broader discussion about how we work together. We have to live together with our nature and our world. And unless we are more active in protecting some of these places and understanding the value of them culturally and from a biodiversity side of things, then we're going to lose everything that we that essentially keeps us alive as a a race. There can be some surprising ways where building and, and retrofit even specifically relate to biodiversity. Like if you use the wrong kind of non-woven breather membranes in a roof, the bats get their, their claws stuck in it and they, they get trapped there and, and can't get out. And we we forget so often of the chemical load of our, de- our design decisions. A lot of materials are quite heavy in CFCs and in chemicals, in, in uh, VOCs. It's not good for us in terms of our internal environments, but it's not good for the for the natural world either and ultimately the the good thing about natural materials about natural building materials and traditional building materials is they do have a a significantly lower impact on our natural world for all the the thermal benefits and the you know emissions and the embodied carbon 
actually we need to also understand that those design decisions can impact the nature around us and, and how well that sort of has to perform and do the job it's supposed to do. So what, what else have you got in the, in the pipeline? What, what kind of research has Historic England got, got coming out soon? I've just had a new member of the team join specifically with the remit of retrofit. We're going to be looking at the role of insulated plasters and renders and their performance. We're going to be looking at intelligent membranes. We are aware that there are various different products on the market and we need to broaden our understanding about the performance of modern materials in in historic buildings and, and traditional buildings. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Morena. It's really great to hear about all the work you're doing and things are changing, maybe not fast enough, but they are changing. Well, we can only move in in, in the direction as fast as possibly can, can't we? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Our next and final episode for 2022 will be an interview with Beijing architect Chan Chan Shu, who is doing remarkable work in rural China. Chan Chan is a member of Denmark's Obel Award jury, and we'll also be talking to her about this year's Obel winner, Ceratec, an innovative approach to net zero concrete developed at Imperial College. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. Thanks.